Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I think it's fair to say that there's not a whole lot that Americans as a whole can agree about nowadays. Well, that's one thing that we can agree about. I might add to that list ice cream, perhaps, puppies, a couple other things. There's not a whole lot that Americans as a whole can agree about. But there is one other thing that has really come to my attention in the last weeks and months in our society today. And that thing is this. That people throughout our society and across the political spectrum all seem to have the same belief that politics and elections and candidates are of ultimate concern. That these are things that matter more than anything else in our lives. That this is what is going to define who we are. I read recently even that this upcoming election is a referendum on the soul of our nation. Be that as it may, there is this general perception and belief that what matters more than anything else in our lives is politics, is candidates, is elections things of Caesar. Now Jesus is going to come in and challenge this perception. And there's good news and bad news to this. See, what we're seeing in our culture right now is this kind of widespread anxiety and fear and uncertainty, which is natural if you think that the world hangs in the balance depending on a particular election. If you think that everything is on the line, that if our very futures are all dependent upon who wins a vote or how things fall out in party politics in 21st century America, then that's going to lead you to a place of, of anxiety and uncertainty. All these things that are out of our control, how could we possibly fix it? And that's going to, to cause you to be fearful and uncertain. The good news is that Jesus is here to assuage that anxiety. To mollify that fear. To show you and me that we don't have to live in that place. That's the good news. The bad news is that he's also going to undermine that one potential point of agreement for all of people in our country. To see how he does that. We need to disentangle these words in today's gospel. It's a short story. It's simple, straightforward. But there's a lot going on here. And so we need to disentangle it a little bit in order to see the punch that our Lord's words really pack. Now, entangling is exactly what Jesus' opponents were trying to do to him. And we see this again and again throughout the Gospels, right? His, his opponents come up to him trying to trap him, trying to play some kind of gotcha game. And we see that again right here. And what's interesting, too, is that it's not only the Pharisees whom we're familiar with, but it's also a group known as the Herodians. Now, the Herodians were folks who were Roman sympathizers, and the Pharisees were famously Roman despisers. These are folks who normally wouldn't want to have anything to do with one another. What, what has brought them together in this case is their shared antipathy toward the Lord. They all want to catch him in a trap. And so they come together and they ask Jesus another one of these, you know, when did you stop kissing your sister sort of questions. <laughs> they say, okay, sir, <clears throat> Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? I find some comfort in the fact that for 2,000 years, taxes continue to be something that we can all disagree about. But they, they think that here is the question where we're really going to get Jesus tripped up. And why is that? It's because it's something that's going to put him between this rock and a hard place. If Jesus says, if Jesus says, no, 
You shouldn't be paying taxes to Caesar. He's effectively endorsing revolt. And the Herodians are going to go notify the Romans, and the Romans are going to quash that incipient Jesus movement. But if on the other hand, on the other hand, if Jesus says uh, no, or if Jesus says yes, pay your taxes, you need to do that, you need to honor Caesar this way, then the uh, Pharisees are going to say, ha, look, see, he's just compliant with Rome. Is this the kind of Messiah that we're going to have? A guy who's just going to go along to get along? So when they ask him that question, it seems like no matter how Jesus answers, boom, they've got him trapped. But of course, this is Jesus. And he does his Jesus jujitsu and gets out of that trap. And how does he do it? Well, the first thing he says is, all right, guys, show me this coin that you're so concerned about whether or not it ought to be given to Caesar. And they flip him a denarius. Note well, they've got one on them, okay? They give him a denarius. And he says, whose image is on this and whose inscription? Now, take a look at the front of your worship folder. You've actually got a, a picture of that denarius that they would have given to him on that day. The image on it is of Tiberius Caesar. And the inscription that's on it, they recognize, yeah, this is Caesar's image. They don't say what the inscription is. Here's what the inscription read. Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Son of the divine Augustus. In other words, saying, in effect, son of God. Sound like anybody else we know? And then on the flip side, it's a picture of Caesar, either his mother or his wife. I forget which it is. But it says uh, Pontifex Maximus. Pontifex Maximus, which means chief priest or high priest. Again, are those words that go to anybody else we know? In both these cases, these are claims that are made by Christ Jesus, that these are words that, properly speaking, belong to him and to him alone. More on that in a minute. But then Jesus utters those timeless words, that pithy statement. He says, so guys, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Cue the mic drop from the Lord. And they walk away and they're marveling at what he says. But what is it about the statement that is so profound and that's so powerful that leaves even his opponents walking away shaking their heads? I mean, yeah, it's succinct. It seems like there's a lot going on there. But I think that many times those words are, are misconstrued in our modern times. We don't understand the full force of what Jesus was saying and his critique to those who were opposing him. And to get at that, let's think again about the two groups that are there. So you've got the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they regard Caesar effectively as Satan. Okay? This is the all-powerful emperor, and he is the worst thing that could have ever happened to us. He must be opposed at every turn. We should not be paying these taxes. We need to recognize that this guy, that he is horrible for us. On the other hand, you have the Herodians, who regard Caesar more akin to a savior. This is the great emperor who is going to provide for our people. We need to submit to him at all costs. Give him your taxes. Give him your heart. Give him whatever you need to do. Now, those seem to be polar opposites. But what Jesus is showing is that these are actually two sides of the same coin. Because notice, in both cases, whether they regard Caesar as Satan or whether they regard him as a savior, in both cases, they are according Caesar a place of ultimate concern. In either case, they're saying whether or not you, you love Caesar or hate him, in both cases, they're saying Caesar matters so much. And Jesus wants to say, eh, don't give him too much credit. 
Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. He says, literally, it's give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, what has Caesar given to them? What belongs to him? Well, he's, he's given them these coins. It's got his image on it. Jesus is not a revolutionary. He's not saying don't pay the taxes. He's saying, yeah, fine, pay the taxes. But what should you not give back to Caesar? You should not give back to him that worship of the Son of God. You should not accord Caesar this place of ultimate importance. See, sometimes we misunderstand these words to say as though these are two categories. These are two things side by side, and they're hermetically sealed from one another. On the one hand, there's all the things that we give back to Caesar, and on the other hand, there's all the things that we give to God. But does that make any sense? I mean, even the things that come from Caesar, where do they ultimately come from? They come from God. I mean, it would be foolish to say, well, yeah, there's things that we give back to Caesar that are not God's. We think of these as two distinct categories. It would be better to understand it as though all of Caesar's realm is enveloped and, and overflowing by the kingdom of God. You understand what I'm saying? That everything that we give back to Caesar is also giving back ultimately to God. All things come from him. To him belong our worship. To him belongs our ultimate loyalty and devotion. If you are giving Caesar a place of ultimate concern, then you are despising and disregarding God of what he deserves more than anything else, which is your worship, which is your devotion. He's not saying, okay, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Give him, you know, uh, Monday through Saturday, but make sure you give to God the things that are God's. Give him your Sundays. No. He's saying, yeah, give back to Caesar his tax, but do not give him your heart. That belongs to God alone. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then he will give you everything else besides. This is the politics of Jesus. It's a politics, if I can put it this way, of political relativism. Political relativism. He's saying that these things have been relativized by the kingdom of God. That when you recognize that God is in charge, that Christ Jesus is the king of kings, that he is the one whom we crown as Lord of all, all of this other stuff, all of the things of Caesar, suddenly take on a different cast. It's just as the, the psalm says, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Put your trust in the Lord most high and recognize that he is of ultimate concern. Thus Jesus speaks to his opponents. What does that have to do with us today? What's the significance of, of this teaching of our Lord for us today in 21st century America? I think of a, a story that my friend Dave Zoll tells. It's a moment when he realized that politics in our culture is almost becoming a kind of religion. He says it was four years ago, right about this time, it was Halloween. It was right before the, the 2016 election. And so Dave was out with his kids at his town in Virginia and they were out trick-or-treating. He was in his vampire outfit. <clears throat> and they were going from door to door and there was a lot of kids out there and families and all the houses were participating. People had all of their, their Halloween stuff up. But he noticed that there was one house that it seemed like all of the kids and all the families, the families were, were steering their kids away from. And this house had its, you know, had its blow-up cat out front. It had its jack-o'-lanterns. It had its lights on. Clearly, it was participating in the whole trick-or-treating ritual. 
And yet all these families were passing by this one house. They thought that was really interesting. He did notice that there was one family that went up to the house. They knocked on the door, and then the little kid said to the owner, what's wrong with you? They said, what in the world is going on here? He got a little bit closer, and he sees in the window a sign for a particular presidential candidate. That doesn't matter which one it is. That's beside the point. The point is, kids, families, were choosing candidates over candy. Friends, this should not be. I mean, I say that in jest, but really, for him, it was this moment of realization. This is where we are in our culture right now, is we are according these things, this place of ultimate importance. He calls this the, the seculosity of politics, this kind of secular religiosity of politics. I want to read for you just uh, one particular quote that he has from his book. I can find it. <clears throat> he says, if once upon a time we look to politics primarily for governance, we now look to it for belonging, righteousness, meaning, and deliverance. In other words, all the things for which we used to rely on religion. Do you see that? And why would that be? I would submit to you that within our society, as faith in God is on the wane, people need to replace that with something. They've got to place something in that God place. And, well, politics seems like a, a natural fit. In the 1950s, polls were held of what percentage of Americans, if your son or daughter were going to marry a person of the political party, would you approve of that? And there was less than 10% at that time that said that they would, they, they would disapprove of that. Less than 10% said, no, I don't want my Republican daughter marrying a, a Democratic um, husband or vice versa. In 2010, that number had shot up to 40%. And in 2020, I don't have the numbers for you, but you and I can only guess what that might be. We have placed of ultimate importance our political identities over our faith identities. And listen, I know some of you are going to object at this point and say, wait a second, though, Pastor. These things are important. They matter. This is issues of life and liberty, of justice and compassion. Are you telling us that we just shouldn't care? That we shouldn't care how our society orders itself? That this doesn't matter? That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's not that these things aren't important. It's that they are not of ultimate importance. I want to remind you of the, the definition of an idol that I often say. An idol is any time you take a good thing and turn it into an ultimate thing. See, An idol is any time you take a good thing and turn it into an ultimate thing. It's not that politics aren't a good thing. Discerning what is best for the common good, how we can serve our neighbors, what's best for the bulk of our society. This is important work. I don't mean to say otherwise, but it is not ultimate work. And that's my fear for our society right now, is that we have made it an ultimate concern. And as a result, as a result, we define ourselves in terms of political convictions rather than faith convictions. We give our heart and soul to Caesar rather than to God. But listen, friends, Christ Jesus came and rendered himself unto Caesar in order that he might give you back, not to Caesar, but to God.
Christ Jesus sacrificed himself, suffered that inhumane, unjust death under Caesar's reign and rule in order that he might claim you who bear the image of God, reclaim you for the kingdom of God, transferring you from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. And now you who bear the image of God also bear that inscription, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because you are baptized, because you belong to Christ, because nothing is going to separate you from his love. It's not a, a matter of every four years now our entire lives are at stake. No, you belong to Christ. And come what may, even if this society goes in the dumper, friends, even if the United States dissolves, and I pray that it does not happen, still the kingdom of God will not dissolve. You belong to Christ, and you belong to a church that the gates of Hades will not prevail against. Nothing can change that, not November 3rd, not any other day of the year. Can I get an amen? The day that has changed everything now and eternally is Easter Day. The fact that your Savior, your King, is risen from the dead, that's what matters most. But cast your votes. Contend for your candidates. Debate these things with one another, not on Facebook, but in real life. Pray for your nation. Pray for your nation and its leaders. But cast your trophies at the feet of the King of Kings alone. Give him your ultimate devotion. And know that come what may, he is Lord of all. And you belong to him. I hope that we can agree on that. Amen. May the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand to pray.